Uh, as I've said numerous weeks as we've made our way through this gospel, this is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible uh, for a lot of different reasons. But I always I like to highlight this every once in a while. Just the reason, one key reason that I gravitate towards this gospel is the way in which Luke writes. Luke is a deeply intellectual guy. He studied thoroughly the life of Jesus. He went to the sources. He interviewed people who had witnessed Jesus' life. And he wrote down their accounts. And he wrote down the teachings of Jesus. He wrote down the events of Jesus' life. And so much of what we get is this very thorough intellectual approach to grappling with the story, the good news of Jesus' life. And that's why we call it a gospel. Gospel means good news. So we come to Luke chapter 13, Uh, and I want to invite you at this time, if you have questions or observations, things from the chapter that you read this week that you really are like, wow, that's interesting, or I don't have a clue what's going on here, Uh, anything in between, this is your chance to share your thoughts with the group. Yeah, Isaiah. The Jewish historian Josephus 
um, described Salome as a fountain and located it near the tunnel that Hezekiah constructed in Jerusalem in, or in Jesus' time. Salome was a well-known area containing both the pool where Jesus sent the blind man to wash, and that's found in John, mm-hmm. as well as a tower. Although there is no material evidence for a tower in Salome, uh, presently it was near the pool of the same. We just presume, I mean, presume it was near the pool with the same name. Continuing mm-hmm. uh, on. Some learned Jewish territory, possibly still in Galilee, Jesus stopped at synagogue. His act of healing a woman on the Sabbath brought criticism from the ruler of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. Jesus had clashed several times previously with Pharisees, scribes, on previously, on precisely this issue. On this occasion, Jesus pointed out the inconsistency, calling them hypocrites with their lack of compassion of his Jewish opponents. Leading one's animal to water on the Sabbath was a common, accepted practice, even though technically it counted as working on the Sabbath day of rest. It was, if this was accepted, why should not Jesus be allowed to heal on the Sabbath? Is it not, is not a human being at least as valuable as a farm animal? Uh, and then, kind of in the middle of chapter 13, there's a whole bunch. Uh, most of Jesus' parables are very short stories that clearly illustrate the single spirit of truth. Mm-hmm. Most of the parables are to be interpreted as either simple metaphors or symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerusalem is the hill country of Judea, and it's not a natural crossroads or the center of the agricultural regions. It's kind of where you're the city was a political and religious center, and its commercial importance derived from this function. The population in Jesus' time was approximately 25,000 to 30,000 people, but grew to five times that number during the pilgrimage festivals. Lastly, when questioned concerning the number of people who will be saved, Jesus hinted that it will be only a few stressing that the way to salvation is more difficult than the way to damnation. He urged people to enter by the narrow gate. Moreover, he warned that those who tried entering by this gate only after it is too late would not succeed. Contrary to popular Jewish belief, Jesus insisted that not every Israelite would be saved, and neither is salvation restricted to only Israel. Those who are saved will come from all directions. Luke reminds his readers, that Jesus' ultimate destination is Jerusalem. Surprisingly, some Pharisees warned Jesus of Herod's desire to kill him, advising him to depart from here. The death threat implied that Jesus was still in Galilee because Herod Antipas was tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC until 39 AD for information. Jesus' response emphasized again that he was still on the way to Jerusalem even if he had not yet left Galilee or, for some reason, had returned there momentarily. It was his ultimate destiny to die in Jerusalem, and nothing could stop him short of that sin. Thanks for sharing, Dave. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. Very thorough. I always very much appreciate that. I have to highlight the first part you said about Siloam, because that sticks out in my mind, and you're, you're right. There are people who read the scriptures, and there are, per- there are references in them to something that there isn't any archaeological or outside source evidence of, and that can be a source of challenge or doubt for a lot of people. I had the experience while in seminary of st- studying the Gospel of John, 
and it was really fascinating because I was studying it in the Greek. We're going through trying to understand the syntax, the language, and as we're making our way one chapter a week through John over the course of a semester, there came a day where our professor, who was Greek Orthodox, and he was a fabulous, fabulous teacher, deep pastoral heart, came running into the room, like over, like super excited. And he was like, you're not going to believe what just happened. And so he comes up onto the stage uh, in, the, in the auditorium where he was going to lecture our, our class. And it happened to be the week that we were studying that story in John of the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus tells a blind man, to go, or a lame man, to go down into the pool, clean, cleanse himself, and then he comes out and able to walk. Up until that point, they had not been able to locate the pool. And there was a prevailing theory about how cities in the ancient world were constructed. The idea was that a layer would be built. After a couple centuries, they'd build a new layer on top of the old one. They wouldn't deconstruct, they'd just build right on top of the old stuff. It was easier to do it that way. And they kept going and going and going. So hypothetically, you could go backwards in time as you dug further down deeper into those layers of the city. The theory at the time was that the layers were uniform, so that you'd build an entire layer all at once, and the city would kind of grow in height over time. And this is kind of the way ancient uh, Israeli cities look, and they all have this name in front of them, like Tel, Tel Aviv, right? And the Tel is, the, is a hill, and it's been built up over centuries. Well, an archaeologist was digging in a place where he believed this has got to be the location of the pool, but we don't have a pool. We're at, at the, we're at supposedly the right level based on what's around it. This is all first century stuff. There's no pool here. They dug a whole other layer deeper and they found a pool, right? A mosaic, beautiful mosaic of tiles at the base of this pool and at the bottom of the pool, a coin with Pilate's face on it. That was discovered the week that I was studying that text in seminary and I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, how cool is that? to be studying this story and to have an archaeologist figure that out. And it changed the whole theory. It wasn't like they could say now, oh yeah, it was uniform, every layer built on top of each other like a cake. Parts of the city would get built up, right? Then more parts, and then more parts. Over a few centuries, a layer is created, not all at once, right? Which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Now we look back and say, well, that sounds like it makes more sense. Because maybe a wealthy person had the ability to build up their property above something that was beat up or broken down. And it would take a little longer for the neighbor and the neighbor and others and different regions of the city. And so it was more like this than a uniform up motion. But having the coin in there, having it kind of change the theory, blew a whole lot of people's minds. But it was one experience I had of that very story that I thought was really cool uh, because it was edifying. Edifying to see that science, which archaeology is one science, was working really hard to get to the truth. I found the truth. It just had to be a little deeper, right? So I think that's a really cool story. But I also really appreciate you sharing that because maybe we don't have evidence of a, of a tower at this time. But likely, if Josephus, the Jewish historian, who is like the number one historian of that era that you're referencing... Uh, he had a lot of things he mentioned, he even mentioned Jesus. And so there's a whole lot of uh, historical work that is based off of his analysis and estimation of what's going on at the time. We learn a lot about Jewish culture from Josephus, who's a very, very well-regarded historian. Yeah, John. Um, I can't 
back on what you said in the first part there because what I hear you talking about is the concept of how do we root ourselves in our belief like what does faith really look like and you know you talk to 12 different people and you're going to come across 12 different approaches to what it looks like to invest their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior some people really wrestle with some big intellectual theological archaeological questions based on what they read in the text what they hear from history, what they understand uh, from science, you name it. I'm personally one of those people. I have a lot of big questions, and I don't have a whole lot of answers. Some of them I don't have answers to. But I also feel like there's an invitation in my faith to take the journey of pursuing answers to my questions. So and like, yeah. for, for example, mm-hmm. uh, like in Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. and Abel. Yeah. Okay, after, after, uh, 
That's a good observation. Who did Cain marry? <laughs> right? <laughs> These are really good questions. But yeah, but yeah. thinking it all there's a lot of that I, I see this yeah. uh-huh. But the thing is I don't question it. It's mm. just a matter of okay, well there must, there must be there something that God's not telling us at that point. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Maybe there was yeah. a population but a totally different species. We don't know. It's true. There's a, a bunch of stuff we don't know, and there's a whole lot of questions we have about how to understand texts in the scriptures. And also, like in the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. you know, Adam and Eve were walking in the bushes after they disappeared. Adam and Eve heard God walking in the bushes. Uh-huh. Now, how would they physically hear him walking in the bushes if God is not mortal? Oh, well, yeah, that's a, that is a good question. Uh, yeah, he acted like he didn't. <laughs> it's an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you right there, John, because you've taken us on a trail of like four or five really good passages that I would totally dive into if we had time. But the bigger issue that I think is really great that you're bringing up is the question of basically apologetics. How do we convey our faith? to our generation of people that are alive today. How do we communicate it? How do we talk about it? How do we deal with our own questions? This is really, really good. So I'll say just a few thoughts about that before I get to some things that I want to point out from Luke 13. One, I noticed, and and from what I've read, apologetics looked a certain way in the 20th century, right? The 1900s, people really worked hard and to come up with logical arguments for things, for issues, theological, to do archaeological study and, and pursue evidence, right? Because the belief was that if we do this, we can come to a place where we can convince people of the truth of our faith based on what we find. Some examples of people that I are in that, that century are C.S. Lewis. He's a great example of someone who applied his mind to big questions and was an atheist and eventually became convinced that Christianity was true because he thought, there's no way on earth anyone would make up a story like this. Like, being a literary genius himself, someone who wrote his own novels, he looked at the story of the faith of Christianity, he looked at the story of Jesus, and through a whole host of wrestlings and questions himself, eventually uh, describes his own faith journey as one being dragged into faith, kicking and screaming. That's kind of how he describes his, his, his journey. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. So now let me say my my observation is that the 21st century and how we communicate our faith is looking very different than it used to in the previous century. People today don't really care as much about a logical argument or archaeological evidence. Some might. But the majority of people, in my observation, are more interested in the evidence of how faith changes their life. How does believing that Jesus is risen from the dead change my experience? That's one of the central questions that 
more people ask today than they ask about the objectivity of did he literally raise from the dead. They want to know what difference does it make in my life, right? So apologetics has to shift. We've got to change how we do our communication of our faith to each other, to people, and we have to point towards the activity of God today. It's one of the reasons I ask you to share with me things like you shared, John, about how God provided your apartment and it was an answer to prayer. That for me is like, hey, I'm just going to point to what God does and show you that God is alive and moving because He does. Uh-huh. Um, I brought this up, mm. and, and some of the brothers and sisters were writing by what I brought up, mm. and uh, they, they were friends because of the fact that I, I brought something that we could not answer, right? Mm. <clears throat> that was not my whole intent. Mm. Mm-hmm. My whole intent is to open up their mind yeah. and to just go deeper into their belief. Yeah. So I'll say, my last thought, because this is really good stuff, is that I want the church, my passion for the church is for it to be a community of people who are okay with questions. Because we have a God who's big enough to handle our questions. You just read the Psalms. I mean, they're constantly asking God, what in the world is going on? Why did this happen? They're asking really big theological questions, and they're asking them directly to God. That's permission. It's in the text of Scripture for us to wrestle. That's the whole meaning behind Jacob's name, right? Is wrestle, one who wrestles with God. He gets the new name Israel at that you know, river encounter. And today it looks like people wrestling with big questions. It's really, really good. We can talk more afterwards. I've got to get my sermon done. So let me finish this. But thank you so much, John. Thank you so much for sharing this. That's really good stuff. This passage in Luke 13 covers a whole bunch of really powerful stuff. We hear about repentance, the necessity of it. At the beginning, we talk uh, about this parable of the fig tree. John referenced that. Uh, And there's this story, this image in this parable of of someone who owns the tree and then a worker who stewards the tree. And the owner says, I'm done. It's not producing any fruit. Just cut it off. Right? It's, It's wasting the soil. And then there's this intercept by the servant who says, no, 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 let me dig around the tree. Let me give it some some nurture, some nutrients, and let's see what happens. Let's be patient, and let's dig deep, let's put in something that can hopefully produce fruit. So the theme of that parable is definitely fruitfulness. Then we get the story of Jesus healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath. Uh, David mentioned this when he was sharing... It was radical, but it was also like a common sense kind of thing. Like Jesus just points out to the, the religious leaders, you, you lead an animal to water, but you won't let me heal a human being. The logic does not line up. You care enough for them to feed them water. You don't care enough for her to let me heal her. The logic Jesus brings is pretty powerful. Then it follows up with two parables, the mustard seed and the yeast. You could put them together and say it's the parables of tiny things, right? The pe- two parables about tiny stuff. Because mustard seeds, which when Superintendent Mark was here a few weeks ago, he actually showed us some, 
But no matter where you were sitting in the room, you're not going to be able to see it because he touched his finger in there and he held it up, and I was back there, and I'm like, I can't even see your finger, let alone the tiny speck that he had on his pointer finger that was a mustard seed. Extremely tiny seed, right? Most seeds are pretty small. That one's a quite small seed. Yeast, a microscopic organism. We can't even see it with your naked eye. So Jesus tells two stories, two parables about extremely small things that have a huge impact. Huge impact. So I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. He goes on to say uh, the portion about the narrow door, that salvation is a gift. And that's a very important uh, passage in Luke 13. And he transitions from that into this lament. Jesus laments what he sees when he looks at Jerusalem, the city that God had formed and given and was named the city of David. The kings would, would rest there. The kings would leave from there. It was the hub of Jewish and Israeli identity. And Jesus looks at it and he talks about it in this profound way. Oh, how I long to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks. A very motherly, compassionate way of talking about God's heart for the city of Jerusalem. It's very powerful. And it communicates in a lot of ways, I think, the character and nature of God's heart for you and me. But that's how God looks at you and me. This deep desire to gather us under his wings. He loves us desperately and and cares for our well-being. So here's some big ideas. When it talked about fruitfulness with the fig tree, I think there's a countercultural teaching in Luke 13 that says quantity is not as important as quality. How much of something you have is not as important as how good that thing is. You could have one thing that is amazing and it will outweigh a million things that are okay. Right? Quality over quantity. I connected this passage, the fruit, the fig tree uh, parable, in my mind to Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is, this is how Paul says, these are the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Okay? Does any of those things have to do with a number? Right? Do we measure love? Do we measure joy with numbers? Do we measure gentleness with numbers? No, right? They're qualitative words. They're qualitative fruit. You can say, I experience profound joy right now. I am giving out of the goodness of my heart. I desire to be faithful. I want to practice kindness, right? So there's a qualitative nature to the fruit. Paul doesn't even talk about measuring it in numbers. But that's the kind of fruit, if you connect the whole theme of fruit to the fig tree, that's the kind of fruit God wants to grow in us. Eventually, this passage with the the woman who's crippled, who Jesus heals, it calls into question some big stuff for us in our era. For one, a question came to mind for me while I was reading it. The question was, do I value rituals and religion over people, compassion, and justice. Because Jesus calls that out in the religious leaders. He says, your concern for following rules and doing these rituals has made it so this woman will stay crippled. But you can turn your heart, and you can turn your view, and you can change your theology to prioritize people over rituals and religion. 
The question is then put before us, do we do the same? And if so, we need to call it out on ourselves. Do I ever prioritize something that is good over the benefit or the love I can have for a person or their needs? That's a big question, right? So we always have to call out or notice the tendency or temptation to be a Pharisee in ourselves, because we all do that, I myself included. So I, talk, I thought about this, I thought about things that I do, prayer, scripture study, worship, these are all so good. They're not second-tier things, they're very important, and yet they're not as important as loving God and loving your neighbor. That's like the most important thing. So when we gather for worship, like we're doing right now, this is a rhythm that's meant to remind us of the most important things. So we gather for worship, we sing, we pray, we dive into the scriptures so that we can go out for the rest of the seven days of the week, like the rest of Sunday and all the other six days. We go out in that week and we do faith. Hopefully this is like coming to the hospital and getting your shots and getting a checkup and you know, getting told, hey, you get to work this, this, this out. And then you walk out and you're like, okay, I got an assessment, I'm feeling stronger, I got my vitamins, it's time to get to work. And we do the work for the rest of the week. And then, the last part, big idea, which is ironic that I call it a big idea, has to do with mustard seeds and yeast. My alternate sermon title could have been, what's the big deal with the small stuff, Jesus? What's the big deal with the small stuff? This is, that I think this is so important for us, because we live in a culture that idolizes the big, that idolizes the grand, that wants to see the fireworks, right? That says the bigger and the stronger and the mightier, in our view as a culture, the better. When you see Jesus walking around in an enemy-oppressed state, Israel was under the oppression of the Roman Empire, tiny little plot of land in the Middle East, very small. He's born in a tiny little village outside the main city, backwater filled with shepherds, quiet, no big pomp and circumstance, right? Just this baby born into poverty in a manger. When he comes on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, there is a lot of pomp and circumstance, but what's he riding? No king in their right mind rides a donkey. But he chose to. He said, this is what needs to happen to fulfill the prophecy set before me. I ride the colt of a donkey. And people lay down palm branches and lay down their cloaks for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem looking like everyone else. He's not wearing a crown. He's not wearing gold jewelry. He's not in the finest purple clothes, the color of royalty. He's wearing what everyone else is wearing. And he's riding a donkey that everyone else would have ridden through a street into the city. But people saw, even in the ordinary, they saw the king of kings. And in part, they recognized him. So here's my three invitations for you this week. Pretty simple. Number one, notice the way our culture prioritizes big things. That's it. Just notice it. Okay, when you're watching a commercial and they say bigger is better or you should want this because it makes you look this way, right? Or you hear it in a conversation with another person, how they're like, wow, look at that thing because it's massive or whatever. Just notice how our culture prioritizes or idolizes the big 
That's all I want you to do is notice it. As you notice it, name it inside your head. You can just say, oh, interesting. I'm noticing the theme of how my culture views these things. Second invitation, look for God in the small stuff. Look for God in the small stuff. Little gestures, little acts of generosity, little maneuvers, little conversations, little movements. Because that's where God is active all the time. And if we have eyes to see, we will see God everywhere, all the time. It's usually really small stuff. Almost always under the radar. Because in our culture, it's all about the big stuff. So notice how our culture prioritizes the big and look for God in the small. And last, here's a daily prayer you can pray this week. Every day, Lord, plant seeds of your fruit in my heart. Simple prayer. Lord, plant seeds of your fruit in my heart. God is an absolutely brilliant gardener. He's, he's just a fabulous gardener. And he gardens a lot of different things. Literal plants. Literal plants. And spiritual fruit in your and my heart. So if we're patient and we ask God daily to plant seeds of his fruit in our hearts, over time we start to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit plants those in you, they grow, they bear fruit, and they bless. You get blessed, and other people get blessed. It's amazing to watch that happen. So three simple invitations, and I pray that God prepares your hearts for Easter next week. So next week, remember, you're invited to bring with you some food or a treat or something to share. A uh, bottle of water, pop, whatever. You maybe got a lemonade recipe you just have to share. I will totally take a sip, a swig of that if you got some yummy lemonade. Uh, but feel free to bring something to share. If you're interested, you can join in with us in a scavenger hunt outside, or you can just sit back, relax, talk, enjoy food and fellowship, and like I said, laugh at those who are running crazy and frantic all over the the playground over there is searching for the stuff that I hide. But it's a blessing to be with you today. Let's close with a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of Luke 13. There's so much in here for us to learn, so much to grapple with, so much to see and receive. We pray together as a community that you would plant seeds in our hearts, seeds of your fruit, fruit that is about the quality of our life. Fruit that will bless other people. Help us to be mindful of how our culture talks about big things. Help us to see you in the small things. Help us to consistently pray for our open and receptive soil in our soul to be plants, to grow, to give fruit, to bless. We thank you, Lord, for this week. We pray a blessing as we walk through Maundy Thursday this week, remembering the Last Supper, remembering the great command to love God and to love others and to love ourselves. We pray a blessing as we walk through Good Friday, remembering the gift of your life for ours on the cross. Bless us, we pray, as we take time through silence and reflection on Holy Saturday. And Lord, we pray that as we look forward in hope to Sunday, that you would open our eyes to see the hope we have in resurrection all around us. 
We thank you for the opportunity we'll have to join together in worship, to study more of the text of Scripture, and to join together in food and fellowship. Bless each of us, we pray, and bless us as we go from this time of worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Feel free to stick around and talk and hang out.